I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. go. (sighs) So I'm going to start with something light. Okay. I just returned from the 56th National Convention of the Illustrious and Industrious Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Mm-hmm. I was in Indianapolis, Indiana. I had never been there before. Um, they did a great job hosting us. There were a lot of us there. Um, many highlights for me included, of course, um, just the fellowship with all of these dynamic college educated black women leaders. And listen, sidebar, if you don't know what Delta Sigma Theta sorority is, and you think it's really weird that this 52-year-old woman went to a sorority convention, um, we've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating that Mm -hmm. historically Black sororities and fraternities um, are generally a lifetime commitment. In fact, I believe that probably more people pledge in alumni chapters after they have graduated than those who pledge um, in college. I could be wrong about that. But the understanding is that you continue to serve. It is like a a space where you um, join an organization committed to public service. Mm -hmm. And so I am a member of Delta Sigma Theta, but um, huge shout out to all of the other amazing organizations doing great service in our community. But since I'm a Delta, I must, (laughs) I must tell y'all about how my sorority not only dropped the mic, they dropped it, they threw it, they kicked mm-hmm. it across the floor, picked it up and threw it again. <laughs> when we had as one of our newest honorary members, the first black woman to become a Supreme Court justice, hey. Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Mm. Baby, when I tell you, when we saw the Secret Service, we were like, what is going on? What oh, so this? y'all didn't know before. It's a... Oh, we, we don't ever know. Okay. We're not allowed to know. We don't know until the people come in. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and no shade to our other um, individuals who became honorary members, all of whom are extraordinary. It takes a lot to be um, invited to be an honorary member. But I think what was particularly special about uh, Justice Jackson is that she is at the height of her game right now. I mean, she just became Supreme Court Justice. And the fact that she would accept this invitation is such a high compliment mm-hmm. to our organization. I, I'm not going to lie. When I first heard of her, I immediately looked to see if she was a Delta because she was giving me Delta. <laughs> you know? Amazing. People, yeah. So, and then the one other thing, since I'm on the Delta hype, in my away message um, <laughs> for work, <clears throat> I said in my away message, I am away serving and attending at the 56th National Convention of Delta Sigma Theta. If you would like to learn more about our 110 year history of social action, service and leadership, click here with a hyperlink in my way message. 
then commenced to list all the dope deltas at Emory and around Grady. That is amazing. I was like, in case you don't know who we are, just look to our leadership. Mm. Like me, Jada Bussy Jones, the president of Morehouse, the head of diversity and health equity at Grady, the head of the ambulatory services, the clinical dean, ask about us. Don't you love that I did that? Mm-hmm. No, I'm glad that you went. You know, you did something for yourself. It sounds like, I mean, I, I know you go every year, but it just seems like every time you come back, there's like a new energy and a new presence about you. Yep. And, you know, I'm not a part of a historically Black sorority, but I do appreciate the history that folks get to be connected to. I, I consider myself Delta adjacent. Well, <laughs> I, I want to also share something brief and, and light because I don't watch a lot of TV, but I do enjoy a good documentary every once in a while. So I want to share one with you. It's on Disney Plus. It's called Wildlife. And I read about it first because I saw the review on the New York Times, um, a story I had no awareness of, but I'll just break it down real quick. So um, it's about this couple. Doug Tompkins is the former founder of North Face Products. Okay. And then his wife was one of like the original employees for Patagonia and like kind of worked her way up to the the C-suite. They met kind of later in life. They fell in love. Doug had previously left his career to move to Patagonia, the region in um, South America between Chile and Argentina. And she eventually left her job too. And both of them pivoted towards this huge project to try to buy up um, all this land and to try to conserve it, essentially like this major conservation project. And then we're going to donate the land back to the government as a national park. Crazy, crazy endeavor. I mean, it brings up a lot of questions, controversy, but you know, you see the passion and the intent behind it. I, I love it because of the way that it ends. It's just her kind of sitting back and reflecting on everything. And then the thing that she says to the cameras, what a life. I just hope that at the end of my life, that's how I feel. Like, John, like what a ride. You know, I'm giving a very poor summary, but I no, just encourage I anybody who's interested to to check it out. I, I, I learned a lot just from diving into a story that I really didn't know much about. And particularly these people behind these very um, prominent products you know, Patagonia being like the new white coat of the medical field now is pretty Ain't that the truth. <laughs> Patagucci. Um. <laughs> uh-huh, because they yeah. are not cheap. And, um, you know, just for our listeners, y'all, we are keenly aware of all of the things that are happening in the news. We are. And, you know, we have actually spent some time offline talking a little bit about those things. But we've kind of decided right now that we would kind of use this time to just to, to bring a little bit of levity. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean we're not, we're not paying attention. Honestly, it's probably that we're hurting and, and still processing. Yeah. Well, although I sounded very calm just a moment ago, <laughs> That will not last long, ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary royalty. Mm. I am um, sitting here drinking a cup of coffee in the evening, which has caffeine running through my body, adding to the hype I already feel about what's about to take place. And what is that? 
Yes, party people. It is that you are about to get a story from none other than the Ashley Mick, capital M Mullen. (laughs) 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 Um, Also known as the the editor in chief (laughs) of the Human Doctor podcast and the person who tells us when every episode is going to drop because it's up to her. (laughs) (laughs) So without further ado Mm. or a don't, please tell me, sis, what is the what? Mm, mm, mm. Wow, we're gonna up the ante on that one. We might need to take a break just so I can, you know, I mean, I mean, work on my game. <laughs> the what I had to chew on this one a little bit, but I think the what for this episode is liability. Oh, liability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first thing that really came to my mind was um, this coach at Tuskegee who used to like mix that word up with another word and used to be like, who's reliable? Who's going to be reliable? I think he meant liable. Yeah. But I, I digress. He's yes. Nice, nice man. But it makes me think somebody is responsible. Mm-hmm. So the story that I am going to share with you is one that takes me back to my chief year, actually. Um, so this was after I completed my three years of residency and did something called a chief year, which is an opportunity to kind of serve in a leadership role. And part of that includes being attending on the medicine service. And so essentially I am essentially like the buck stops with me. You know, we have our incredible medical students, we have our interns, we have our senior residents who really run the show. But at the end of the day, as the attending, you are liable for whatever goes down. And so this is my absolute first stint as an attending. So it's, as one can anticipate, a little nerve wracking. I was lucky to find myself assigned to an incredible team that included someone that you know, an Emory School of Medicine graduate uh, named Larit, who was Larit. my oh, residence. I won't deny that I may have had something to do with that assignment. <laughs> I was about to say, Larit, Larit became a chief resident, and if the exactly. chief gave themselves a chief. Exactly, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I felt very at ease having Larit in the driver's seat. We had a really good team all around, wonderful interns. I did this stint over our our winter holidays. And so I actually liked that time just because it's a little bit of a slower pace in the hospital and the teams are smaller. And after our first week, you know, we were, we were cruising, Mm -hmm. but as the holiday block ended and things kind of kick off again and get busy, um, there's some redistributing of our patient cases assigned to the medicine service, just to make sure that everybody's kind of holding equal weight, you know, as we go post-holiday season. And so we were getting sign out on a couple of new patients that were going to come to our team. I remember this very vividly because I remember the resident who was giving us information on these patients looked so tired, like just mm. so, so burnt out. And it was particularly related to a patient that she was giving us a warm handoff for. And so this was a patient who was a a younger adult woman who had been in the hospital for a long time, I think several months at that point. Mm -hmm. She was someone who had a chronic condition that started in childhood and had been in the hospital a couple of times for uh, issues related to this condition. But on this particular admission, she had a complication, and I'm being intentionally vague here to try to protect the privacy 
but had a bad complication that resulted in needing kind of emergent surgery and a very complicated medical stay. Hmm. In addition to her challenging hospital course was the dynamics of her parents who were present with her. It is not often that I have the types of interactions in which I am having to also be concerned about patients' parents being involved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This was going to be a new experience for me. And the complicating layers of this was that the patient's parents were extremely distrustful of the medical system. They were very quick to attribute any complications to the, like, the fault of the providers. Mm-hmm. The other interesting piece about this was that Lorit and I had racial concordance with this family. Mm-hmm. And so I also had within that context, the notion that sometimes what gets labeled as aggressive and difficult are, you know, people, particularly people of color doing what they have to do to advocate for their, their family members. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm sensitive to all these different, different things that I'm hearing. You know, we were hopeful that she was finally kind of nearing the tail end of this hospital stay. She had to have a procedure done to get a, uh, a tube placed in her stomach to replace the tube that was in her nose to get nourishment. And then other than that, you know, she was completing a course of some IV medications. And then we were hopeful to try to get her at least out of the acute care setting very soon. But as luck would have it, she had a complication during this procedure to get the peg tube placed in her stomach. While they were pulling out the tube that it was in her nose, she had a very massive nosebleed. Mm. And we didn't know that at the time. We just knew that, you know, she had been taken to get this procedure and it was taking longer than expected for her to come out. And so the patient's family is like paging my intern, like what's going on, like yada, yada. And we're just like kind of trying to smooth things over. We don't really understand what the delay is, but, you know, we don't anticipate that there's anything terrible happening. So essentially she got out of the procedure and they had to get the ear, nose and throat specialist involved to pack her nose because it was such a bad bleed. And on top of that, this family had very deeply held religious beliefs around blood products. And so any blood that she lost was really dangerous because we weren't going to be able to replace it. And she was very much teetering on the edge of, you know, someone that we would consider giving a blood transfusion to under different circumstances. Mm. And so one of the things I just want to highlight here is even though we had racial concordance, there were a lot of differences that I was still struggling to try to empathize with. In trying to talk to her as an individual is very difficult. Mm-hmm. The family was very loath to leave her by herself, mm-hmm. understandably, you know, and she wasn't like 18, like she was young, but she wasn't super young, but she had a very young affect, like someone yeah. who was just used to kind of being told what to do. Yeah. And so again, I was just like, this is, ooh, this is a little, <laughs> a yeah. little out of my league, but I knew that, you know, in this situation, I really needed to be present um, as the attending. Part of my role is also to protect my team. And for even though I had like an incredible intern managing this case, I was really impressed with her. Being an intern is also a really sensitive time. And so, you know, when you're already walking on eggshells with family that is really not okay with things deviating from expectations, I really wanted to be able to position myself to absorb any blowback that could potentially happen. Hmm. Like literally within 48 hours of meeting this family, now there's already been a new complication with this last procedure. 
Thankfully, the bleeding was controlled, the, the nasal packing was in and conferred with ENT that things were stable. We were about to go into the weekend and they said, we'll take another look at things on Monday. And at that point, we'll remove the packing. And so by packing, I mean, this is not just, you know, a little bit of tissue, like hanging out in the nostril. Imagine a giant tampon shoved into the back of your nose. Like it's, it's not a comfortable situation. Mm. You know, I, I think it was either Saturday or I want to say Sunday, our intern gets a page that the, the family is needing to have a conversation immediately. The family was insistent on having the nasal packing removed that mm. day instead of waiting. Mm. So I went back with the intern to try to explain why we wanted to have more time to have the experts nearby in case another bleed were to happen. And there was no moving their response. That mm. packing absolutely had to come out. And one of the things that was actually humbling to me was they were asking, like, well, what is what is the evidence? Like, what is the difference? Mm. Why mm. does it need to wait until tomorrow? Well, ENT said so. Yeah. But I didn't even question that. And, and what what was the urgency on their end? Was it was it pain? Was it just discomfort? It was discomfort. She was extremely uncomfortable, which I would be too. Yeah. And my answer that we needed to wait for ENT was not satisfying. Even reflecting after that conversation, part of me wondered what is the logic behind waiting another 24 hours? Because, you know, part of me wondered if that was just easier for the team to not have to send their one on-call person in during the weekend. Yeah. Um, which is like a very, a very realistic approach to how we do things in that particular context. Like it wasn't like a clear set, like it must be this amount of time before you take it out. Sure. So conferring with my team, conferring with the family, we decided that we were going to try to take the packing out. And I decided that I was going to be the one to do it because if something were to happen, I did not want my intern or residents to be the ones directly responsible. Hmm. I sat down with the family too, and also tried to really like make it very granular around like the worst that could happen, which is again, she was already kind of teetering on the edge of needing a transfusion. If, she were to have another massive nosebleed, this could be a really, really dangerous situation. Oh, right. And they and they also did not accept did not blood, accept product. blood products. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. It was a risk. And one in which, again, my first stint as an attending, like this is what it means to step up and accept that responsibility and that liability. Because the family were very adamant in that they were no longer willing to leave her uncomfortable. They were not mm. satisfied with the idea of waiting around for free NT mm. and they were willing to, to take the risk. And so I abided by that decision. I think I called my mom before like, I had to say a little prayer, got all the supplies I could, had a contingency plan together if things were to go south. And I proceeded to start pulling out this packing. And, you know, for our listeners who perhaps aren't in medicine, like, you know, most nosebleeds self-resolve. And just to be clear, like, you know, there's some deeper arteries post deep in the nose that can cause like really bad hemorrhages. And I think this is where her previous bleed had come from. And so I am slowly removing this packing, like checking oh, for any oozing. <laughs> oh, like I am trying to hold my 
my composure, but I know that I'm like sweating profusely under my white coat. So finally get to the last piece, get it out, hold steady, no bleeding. Okay. And then finally I looked over at this patient's father and he is grinning ear to ear. And his only response is, I told you nothing would happen. I told you. And honestly, like as frustrating as that encounter was, it actually set the tone for the remainder of my time and helped us establish an easier rapport than we had at the beginning. Mm. But it was a huge lesson for me in many respects. Again, number one, like at the end of the day, like you have to to call the shots and like accept the risk when you're the attending. And it's easy to kind of be a little more hands-off, um, particularly at our institution, just given the culture and the excellence of our residents. But this was a situation in which, you know, I had to really be on game. And to be honest, that was, I was just very humbled hmm. in, you know, thinking that things might be a little bit smoother because we had racial concordance, but also recognizing like there were a lot of different dynamics at play there that didn't just rely on us sharing the same race. Hmm. So let me ask you, what would you have done if she had begun to bleed? Did you have a plan? We would have had to basically get ENT in their stat. We would have had to call them to come in. And I mean, I would have just packed it the best that I could and held okay. pressure until we could get um, more folks involved. If her pressure dropped, we would have just had to try to replete her with fluids um, in the meantime. But I was very clear with the family on mm-hmm. that possibility. Mm. Wow. That's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that was hard. And I, I love what, what stands out to me about your story. One is that you did it with your own hands, really as a way to protect your team, but also just to be the one to fall on the sword if that was necessary, mm-hmm. um, which probably did not go unnoticed to, to your team, which is huge. It's kind of like sometimes when people are really upset in the hospital or something bad is happening, I, I try to, you know, let me let me go over there and stand in front of this venom mm-hmm. instead of just leaving it to them because it's so much easier sometimes to do that. The other piece too, though, is that I realize now we are in a different time than we were in when I trained or probably mm-hmm. even when you trained. You know, when I trained, it was really truly 100% about the patient. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no concern for the well-being of the providers or the healthcare workers mattered. Mm. You needed to do whatever you had to do for the patient. And so the, the, the fight would have been different for me back then, right? It would have been like, this isn't really based on any rhyme or reason. How, how dare you make this person sit with this very uncomfortable packing shoved up her nose and mouth breathing mm-hmm. until it's convenient for you to come back? Mm-hmm. Not at the time really thinking about all the system factors that are at play. Uh, many times our, um, our surgical subspecialists and specialists are covering more than one hospital. And as unfortunate as it is, a decision like that may be made because the system has been set up in a way where we don't have the manpower. Now, one could argue, well, why don't we have more people around? Yeah, sure. Like, I agree. Uh, but until we do, I think sometimes those are the decisions they get made. But when I was in training, I never saw anything that way. Mm. I just was like, what's best for the patient? We do what's best (laughs) for the patient. 
And now, and now, you know, that dog don't hunt. It's one of my patients who say it all the time. That dog don't hunt, doc. That dog don't hunt. You know, like I can't, I can't say to you on Saturday at four that I'm about to pull this thing out that could lead to a surgical emergency and, oh, well, you better come on up here. Yeah. Um, I can't, I can't really do that anymore. And it's, and that's one of the hardest things that people are facing in medicine right now is the moral injury of doing things that you know could make a patient more uncomfortable because we have now moved into a space where our well-being matters too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah, that's that's a really weird space because one could argue that you could have told the family, y'all could pull it out yourself. You do whatever <laughs> you want to do. Um, yeah. But the, the combination of you not wanting um, blood products, which is absolutely you're right, especially if that aligns with your religious beliefs, that is what you should do. But the combination of that plus the lack of support from a surgical team is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you named that because, you know, as a, as a new attending, like, you know, you don't know exactly where you can push, particularly when it comes to like your, your surgical colleagues. And, you know, and I'm, I was close enough to residency to recognize like what I was asking, you know, for one person who was covering multiple hospitals to come in and be present for this situation that, you know, may or may not need your assistance. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not a, it's not an easy thing to do Mm -hmm. at the same time. It was just like a decision had to be made. Um, Yeah. No. And I, I mean, I, and actually the thing about medicine is that you do have to just make calls sometimes. mm -hmm. Right. You know, the the truth is that there's probably, there are many things that our otolaryngology colleagues do that are very high tech and you don't want me as an internist going nowhere near trying to do it. Mm-hmm. But probably a very determined internist or a very determined emergency physician could figure out how to pack your nose. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, probably with the right materials, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I imagine that to some degree that is something you thought, which would be different than removing somebody's abdominal sutures and having their innards fall out. Like you ain't gonna be able to do nothing about that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, But, you know, I I just bring up the fact that we are now in a space where we're walking this very delicate tightrope between being champions for patient advocacy and protecting ourselves, which includes moral distress, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like for real. Right. Because everything is fine until it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, it it did get a little easier after that, but it was still a very, very difficult, probably one of my most difficult, or I guess most challenging inpatient encounters. And it was a lot of emotional work to to show up and take care of the patient and take care of my team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I know you probably thought this, but I would say when I find myself in situations like that, especially when I was doing peds, but also when I when I'm caring for hospitalized patients whose loved ones are very involved and protective, as I just, I'm like, this is not about me. This mm. is just not this energy mm. that I'm getting right here, this pushback, this, whatever difficulty it is. If you seem untrusting, even whatever it is, whatever unpleasantness that I'm feeling, chances are it has very little to do with me. Mm. And sometimes, sometimes mm-hmm. there's something we've said or done that's rubbed a patient the wrong way, but most of the time it's not. And if I, if I can figure that piece out, 
then I'm not, I'm not taking it personally anymore. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not swinging back or anything. I can actually stand still in, in that storm because I know, and I know it's not about me and people don't really enjoy being angry yeah. very long. Mm. So I've learned also that immediately what I coach myself to say is this is not about me. This is just not about me. This is not be yeah. still. And then eventually there's a space for you to step in mm. to this little moment of calm. Um, and it is fairly predictable. I mean, it is fairly predictable. And this is not me trying to manipulate you. This is us focused on the same true north, which is that we both want your loved one to be well. Yeah. And I can't help you if you hollering at me and you calling me out my name. Mm. And you can't help you, your loved one, if you hollering at me and calling me out my name. Like we we just gonna be at a standstill. Yeah. So mm. yeah, again, it was it was formative and I felt like a better educator after that in terms of like, this is what it means to have this level of responsibility. This is what it means to have the privilege of being um, in a senior position. And so, you know, I'm glad that I got to experience and, and model that. I, you know, don't believe for a second that it was all perfect, that I, you know, I made a <laughs> lot of mistakes. <laughs> that, well, you that, know what? I'm but... just sitting here smiling because I'm thinking, you know, maybe that coach back at Tuskegee was right, you know? It's not just who's liable, it's who's reliable. Mm, mm. <laughs> Cause, uh, yes. Because, you, you know, the way to be the best at this is to show up. And mm. one way to be liable is to be reliable. Mm -hmm. So who's yeah. reliable? <laughs> <laughs> you yes, are. I you am. Are. Put me You're in, reliable. coach. You put you in, coach. You're reliable. Yeah. I, I love, love it. it. I love it. I love it. Well, sis. I, I'm really grateful that you made a decision and, you know, stood on it and, and, and you were ready to be in the line of whatever was going to come next. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a, that was modeling some, some very strong leadership. So shout out to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Shout out to the team. Have my back. <laughs> shout out to the team. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, um, hopefully nobody is bleeding tomorrow when you mm. go to clinic <laughs> and hopefully nobody is bleeding when I start the hospital service on Wednesday when this episode drops okay I'm <laughs> sending you all the good vibes no no bleeders but if one does happen you know it's all good because I will be calling for some help <laughs> yes. and um <laughs> try my best to be reliable <laughs> there you go. all right girl love you I love you too, sis. Have a good night. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and The Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam. And especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.